okay, more people will join. I'm going to start it up first. Um, I'll introduce our two authors in a second. First, a little bit of housekeeping. I am Dr. Ira Kirschenbaum. I am the editor of the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation. Um, we, um, I also am the chairman of orthopedics at Bronx Care Health System in the South Bronx. Um, CME is available for this article. Uh, you just go to joey.pub, click on the article that you want to get CME. CME has a nominal $50 uh, charge from the Current Concepts Institute. Additionally, you'll find future journal club dates on the events navigation tab on joey.pub. Uh, finally, we're doing a very large two-year project on tribute to Titans. Uh, which all of us have had mentors in orthopedics and we developed an artificial intelligence survey system that allows you to record and automatically transcribe your memories and vignettes of people who were mentors to you. And that is also online on, this, on the system. You just go to the events tab. And finally, if you have a question, just place it in the chat and I'll ask you to unmute and we'll do that. Um, I am going to... Um, introduce now um, to our two authors of what is really one of the most popular articles in the last five years in any journal. Um, the article being 12 by 12, obtaining true OR efficiency with radical time, transparency and operational excellence. I'm gonna introduce Charles DePook and Jeremy Statton. I'd like you guys please to say a couple of things about yourself and take it from there. Jeremy, you wanna start? Sure. So, um, yeah, my name is Jeremy Statton. I've been in practice for about 12 years, uh, trained at the University of Louisville, uh, originally practiced in Kentucky, but then moved to the Atlanta area and have been here for seven years. And, um, you know, it's funny, I had no idea what Total Joints was going to become when I was a resident. Uh, I feel like we're at this place in the history of Total Joints where it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun and I look forward to see where else it goes to. Awesome. I'm Charlie DeCook. I'm uh, 12 years here in Atlanta. We have a arthritis and total joint program, uh, which consists of 10 total joint surgeons. We have a joint only practice. So all we do is total joints. Um, we do them all in a surgery center. So to give you an idea, we do about 98% of all our primaries are done in a surgery center or in an outpatient setting. So that's a little bit of our background. That's great. That's great. So um, the article uh, talk about extreme OR efficiency, radical time transparency. How did you guys first get interested in this concept of efficiency and time management? Because you really took a lot of business principles that yeah. are in Toyota and elsewhere and just ripped them into the OR. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. You know, well, first of all, you know, everyone has to understand that this is a business, right? So, you know, we all want to be more efficient. You know, I don't think Jeremy and I are any, any bit unique from that perspective. We all want to be able to do more cases in a day, make ourselves more productive. So it started that way and it started in the hospital. And we said, well, how, how well can we do in the OR and how efficient can we become? And we had done pretty darn good. We became pretty efficient. We had surgeons coming to watch and say, gosh, you know, they didn't care about Jeremy and I, they, they, you know, we're average surgeons, you know, they're like, my gosh, you have the most unbelievable teams. You have assembled such a thing here. 
And, you know, that kind of got our wheels spinning of, okay, how do we kind of reproduce this for everybody that comes? And, you know, can we kind of reproduce what we're doing here in other places? So that kind of got noodled around um, really about six or seven years ago. And uh, it just morphed over time. And as we've uh, kind of kind of reconceptualized efficiency in the OR, we've, you know, tried to capture most of that, at least in this in this entry article to kind of give people a flavor of of where we think things can go. Jeremy, how about you? When did you start realizing this was critical? Yeah, I would, you know, it, it, some of it was just a just a personal effort where you're 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 doing a case and then you sit there and you ask yourself, why did I just do that step? Like, did it add anything to what I'm doing? And you you can sit there and start to piece apart, you know, criticize yourself a little bit, but also start pulling out the things that aren't necessarily adding anything to your procedure. And it's just, just kind of fascinating to get better from a, just an individual perspective. And then I would reiterate what Charlie said about teams. And then you, you, you realize, well, Hey, you know, I'm my OR times are decreasing just from what I'm doing. And then I can add another case. And then you start to develop teams that also get fascinated by what you're doing. You know, they realize that if you're doing a hip and it takes this long and somebody else is in the other room and it takes two hours that, that there's something a little bit different there. And then the team start to develop and it's a lot of fun. And they, you can create an environment where people want to be there. They enjoy it. Uh, and they feel like they're doing something even a little bit bigger than just getting a hip or knee done. And it, it's turn, it just starts turning it into fun. You, you know, I think Jeremy kind of prompted a, a thought I had, which was, you know, we as surgeons are so isolated in our operating rooms, you know, when we, we do our fellowships and then we come out and practice and we basically operate by ourselves the rest of our careers. And we kind of self-reflect on how good a surgeon we are, how good are we doing? And there's very little metrics we can use to really assess how good we are. We've got patient report outcomes, we've got satisfaction scores, we've got complication rates. But beyond that, you know, how do you really assess yourself? So we started to think, well, you know, is time a fair metric? Um, you know, a very famous uh, efficient surgeon once said, there's no such thing as a good slow surgeon, right? And I started, man, I started to think about that more and more. And I tried to think about all my mentors and all the people that I know as surgeons. I thought, my gosh, that may be absolutely true. So we started to think, well, maybe we can use time metrics to help assess ourselves and how well we're doing. So, you know, Jeremy talked about each step in your surgery. You know, it's funny when you ask any surgeon, how long does it take to do a total knee? You know, they're going to give you a general idea of what they think it is. And it's guaranteed to be a little bit shorter than, you know, what it actually is because they're probably out of the room when their assistant's closing the wound and they have no idea it takes an hour and I don't know, 20 minutes or whatever, whatever it happens to be. So we started to think, man, oh man, we need to be a little bit more transparent about what we're doing and how we can actually improve. So we have fellows and it has been absolutely phenomenal for us because a fellow can, you know, start his fellowship and say, boy, it took me, you know, 50 minutes to do a total hip at the end, it takes them 35 or 30 or whatever the case may be and say, how am I improved? And time is interestingly, one of those metrics that is important to quality and is important to how well you can really master what we do as total joint surgeons. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, yeah. how did, what, what's the first step? I think a lot of people are probably on here. And by the way, if people have questions, you can go to the chat 
put them on. I'll either call on you or ask the question for you. What was, what was the first step? I mean, I would say in my OR or our OR at a hospital, we'd like to get going. Like we'd like to, I, I know we, we can go and visit you and that's great. And we'll talk about that at the end. How do we get to visit you? But well, what's kind of the first steps if there is such a, if, even if that's a question? I think the first step has to be pain. It has to be painful to you, the process you're going through, right? And I think so many surgeons, frankly, other staff can relate with this idea. And that is, gosh, I am so frustrated with what I currently am doing, right? I know I can do so much more. I know that it's such a waste of my time when I come to the hospital and half the time I'm sitting around waiting for the next case. So I think frustration is the first key, right? If you're happy with what you're doing, if you're happy doing three cases a day, perfect. You know, I don't want to change a thing that you want to do, right? If you want to do two cases a day and you're a great surgeon, perfect, you know, uh, but if you're frustrated, I think that's the first step, right? And for us, it was frustration. And then we started to look at, okay, what are all the root causes of where can this thing go wrong? And we came up this list of like 50 different things. We're like, oh my gosh, we can get screwed on every single step in this process, right? If you think about the patient journey from when you tell someone to come in to when they actually come in to when they get you know, get ready and pre-op to brought back to the OR, back to the PACU, back to recovery, back out the door. I mean, there's so many ways we can screw this up, right? Right. And, and the most frustrating thing about it is it's often different. Like if it was one thing, right? If we told our patients, well, I need to tell them to come in three hours before the surgery and that would fix everything fine. Or if it was just anesthesia that was the issue or just this particular nurse or just a particular process, but it never is, right? right. So, you know, you just can't pin it down to one particular thing. And uh, that becomes super frustrating because then you don't know who to blame in the process, right? It's like, gosh, you know, well, I can yell at anesthesia today, but it's really not their fault. Or I can yell at somebody who didn't, who forgot to tell the next patient to come in earlier, right? So if you don't keep track of time, just as we know, data is so important. If you're not keeping track of how you can change with time, then you're going to have problems. So that was our concept of this radical time transparency. So the first thing you have to do after you're frustrated is you have to measure time, right? right? And, you know, it starts in your OR, right? You often think, well, anesthesia is slowing me down. Well, it's probably actually you because you have no idea as a surgeon how long you're taking, right? When we start to show surgeons, hey, listen, you're doing great. The surgery take you 40 minutes, but you've got an assistant that closes for another 40 minutes. Right. That's where you're losing all your time, right? So you have to take it first to yourself and say, how can I do better as, you know, myself? You know, what do I struggle with? You know, is it on a knee? Am I struggling with the bad valgus knees? Is it hardware? Is it, uh, you know, exposure and anterior approach? Whatever the case may be, you have to start really tracking individual steps in your procedure to really know how good you are. And then you start to look outward into, okay, my core team, how long does it take for my scrub tech to open up? 
You know, and if you ask any surgeon that, they have no clue how long it takes to open up for a total knee with 12 pans and all the rest, right? They just have no idea, right? No wonder your, your turnover took 45 minutes because you only have a scrub tech and one poor person helping out and it's taking forever to open everything. So, you know, for us, it's, gosh, you got to be aware of each step in time during that patient journey. Jeremy, a couple of comments. Yeah, I would, I, I, I would second what Charlie said about frustration and pain, but sometimes when we're frustrated, we're hurting, we, we turn that into despair or, or just anger or, you know, we, we, we un, unleash on people. I think it's important to turn that energy into uh, energy that then helps you solve problems. So you've got to be so frustrated, not that you give up, but that you then turn around and have the energy to, to, to want to fix problems and start questioning what, why, why does this happen this way? Or why does that happen that way without, without blame, but just with constructive criticism for yourself and for others, just looking at your whole system and evaluating all these little steps. Um, it, it requires some degree of vulnerability. So you have to be willing to just, just lay it wide open and go, you know, be willing to ask your assistant what, you know, our, our first assist sometimes operate with multiple different surgeons and they see people do things better than what we do. You've got to be willing to say, what could I, what could I improve? Um, and, and then of course, if you're going, if you're in a hospital and you're trying to improve efficiency, it's going to take a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of persistence, and you're going to, you're going to feel like people get excited and things are going to happen. And you've got to just keep, keep it going and keep re-energizing the conversation and not give up. We have a question, um, from, from Mike Redler. Um, how are messages of inefficiency received by people? Yeah. Well, the great thing is if you make time transparent, you're not the one delivering that message, right? Oftentimes, you know, you confront the staff or something like that and say, boy, the circulator went and took a break there, you know, turnover times, you know, 110 minutes. And then as Jeremy said, you get frustrated and say, Hey, what's going on here? You know, I think if, if you stay independent of that, and you let data speak for itself, I think then it's received well. So, you know, in our surgery center and our hospital, it's been received tremendously well because everyone wants to do better, right? So we never use it as a confrontational tool or boy, you know, this scrub tech takes an hour to open up a case or something like that. It's just never been that. I don't think it ever should be that. It's just a matter of fact thing. And everyone, you know, is motivated to do better you know, that's what we're all motivated. We're not ultimately motivated by money. We're ultimately motivated to be part of something great, to take good care of patients. I mean, that's our true motivation. And the scrub techs, the circulators, I mean, everyone just seems to, man, they love it. They look up on our screen and see the time and they know exactly, you know, how they're contributing to the overall process and they feel like part of the team. So yeah, we don't want to make this a confrontational thing that never works out. I think that one of the things I would question, Charles, is is how um, who, who's recording the data, and you know, are they accepted as a uh, you know a, a independent evaluator, so they're not biased in any direction? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing you have to note is every hospital system is tracking a lot of this data, right? So, you know, the circular has to note when they're in the room and, you know, when the incision, when the timeout, all these things. 
But the funny thing is nobody, it's locked away in some EMR for some meeting three months from now. So nobody can actually act on it. So in our OR, anyone can advance the time and the steps. So we have little uh, clickers that I wear sterilely inside. I've got my scrub tech does, my circulator does. So as soon as someone hits the room, boom, clocked in the room, one timer goes up you know, clocked in when incision, you know, and every step along this process is visualized for everyone to see. So everyone's kind of part of the game to make sure we're all, you know, keeping on track of this is the current step we're on. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to um, show a video that uh, uh, Charles and Jeremy sent me. Um, first of all, I, I always want to say that one of my favorite quotes is from Anna Karenina, the first line, all happy families are the same. Are happy the same way, and all unhappy families are not happy in their own special way. All good business systems are good in the same way, and all bad ones screw it up in their own special way. You know, so you're following some good business systems. Let me show this video that was sent. Um, um, this one is um, here. It is efficiency case. Do you guys see this? Improving. Yeah, we got it. Okay. The second case is a 72-year-old female with left hip LA. We're going to highlight the efficiency in the operating room for this total hip arthroplasty. It's important to know that every team member is contributing to that efficiency. Absolutely critical to efficiency is making time transparent in the operating room. As you can see, this is the screen that we show during every case. This screen is visible to everyone in the operating room. It allows us to have radical time transparency. We know when the patient walks in the room. We know how long the surgery took and how long each step in the procedure takes. It's important to do these tasks parallel and not series. We have a scrub tech getting ready for this case. We have others getting ready for prepped and draped. And the important time is from wheels in to incision. So in this case, the wheels are in at 725. Noting the time from wheels in to incision is critical to a time efficiency. So I make my incision at 7.33 in the morning, and that's when the timer begins. Each step in the procedure is timestamped so we can make time visible to all and improve our individual components of efficiency. We subsequently read the acid tablet at three minutes in the procedure, and at four minutes, we're placing the acid tablet cup with a surgical impactor. I'll bring in fluoroscopy for cup position. Seven minutes into the procedure, we're now broaching the femur with a surgical impactor. And because we track time during the procedure, we are able to tell how efficient our surgical impactor is. Evaluating any new enabling technology is simple when you're tracking time. Note the time there at eight minutes and 18 seconds. Now I'm placing the trial components, placing the femoral head and getting ready to reduce the hip. The femur now took me two minutes and 21 seconds to perform that. Subsequent to this, I'm now reducing the hip and bringing an x-ray to get an idea of both my leg length and offset. Those are the images that I've obtained there at eight minutes and 40 seconds into the procedure. I'm using uh, enabling technologies to overlay those on top of each other. 10 minutes in the procedure, now you can see that I've placed my stem. I'm getting my final one trial analysis. I'm placing my final femoral head and reducing the hip for final fluoroscopic images. All implants are now in at uh, 10 minutes and 39 seconds into the procedure. And final fluoroscopic images are displayed in the upper left-hand corner of the screen. 
Now, it should be noted, this closing of this total hypoarthroplasty took us a total of nine minutes and 59 seconds, almost as long as the total hypoarthroplasty did. It's important to note that as soon as that wound is closed, it's critical how long it takes you to get that patient out of the room subsequently for that next patient. That's where time is lost is when we're not operating. So here are the final metrics. Wheels out of the 757. That means it took me a total of 20 minutes to do this case. I'm comparing now my surgical efficiency of this case to those of previous cases and my average times. We were routinely doing 12 cases by 12 o'clock in two operating rooms starting at 6.30 in the morning. And we do this all with using enabling technology to our advantage to improve our surgical efficiency. Thank you very much. Yeah, so that is, uh, that is a remarkable video. There was a, a couple of questions uh, that, that came up. Um, um, do your scrub techs have a standardized setup from, from uh, Liz Maselli? Do your scrub techs have a standardized setup for every case? I'm sure you have an answer to that. Jeremy, you want to answer? Yeah, they do. They uh, so we, uh, we one we have we, we got together all the the surgeons operated our surgery center and said what what's necessary in our pants. Uh, what 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 do people need? What's not necessary? And we all came to agreement that this this is what I need to do a hip and this is what I need to do a knee. And and they there's only one tray they have to find. They don't have to find this guy's or or that person's tray and. Uh, and then the, the, the Mayo is, is standardized. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a little different for each surgeon, but they they know, uh, they've learned it. Uh, they've taken pictures and they've got them put away somewhere. So if they forget, they can always reference it, but, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be the same every time. And I think that's, that's an important part. That's, it's a great question because it's an important part of efficiency. You, you can't, can't be changing it up. Like, well, we're going to do something different, totally different today. You know, we're going to, we're going to do the femur first and that's tabulum second or, or whatever, because you, if you do that, then you'll, you'll, no one knows what's, what step is next. No one knows what instrument to hand you or what to do next. So, yeah. It's a great it's question. Also, Sorry, guys. Yeah, it's yeah. also so much easier to operate when you do it the same way every time, right? So one step has to become the next step. So if I always grab a Ronjur, even if I don't need that Ronjur, I'm going to take it from my scrub tech and screw around with it for two seconds before I hand it off, right? Just because that consistency teaches that scrub tech to do it over and over. You know, on our, on our wall, on our monitor, we have each step in the process laid out for those that need it. Now, our surgery center, you know, we are fortunate now to have all scrub techs that, you know, frankly, don't have to look up anywhere. They know what our next step is. But I think everybody can relate when you go to the hospital and you're dealing with, you know, a GYN uh, scrub tech, you know, I just feel so sorry for them because, you know, I think patients and family members would just be horrified if they knew that, you know, here you're dealing with two people that never met each other before. And here we are trying to operate together in the OR. Um, so yeah, having those consistent teams, I, I think is a super important part of this process. What is the, Lucas Nickel had a great question. Um, what are the actual systems you use to track time? I mean, there was a screen there. Someone programmed that. I mean, what? Yeah, that's something we designed. It's, it's a program we designed to help out our OR. Okay. Um, I think it's, you know, it's not quite, well, it is commercially available, um, but um, we, we designed it for surgeons. So when they came and saw this, you know, it kind of introduced this idea of time transparency so that they could carry it back to their ORs. Um, so yeah, we developed that, that process. 
It's great. It, it, it really was great. I, I also want to share another video now, which was um, seeing a bunch of patients. Um, yeah, just pre just preparation for that, Ira. Uh, you know, the bottom line is it's obviously not just the operating room. If you have a very efficient operating room and you, you have nowhere to put your patients afterwards, you're in trouble. So this is showing this is going to show you both our pre-op and PACU and our surgery center and what stage each patient is in the process at 9, 10 in the morning. All right, here we go. Okay, it's 9, 10. I want to say hello to our patients this morning. Here's patient number one here. How are you doing? Any discomfort? Can you lift your legs up? Very good. You're ready to go to the bathroom. Here's our, here's our, here's our first knee. How are you doing? Any discomfort? Very One of the take-home messages there it looks like the video is playing again. One of the take-home messages that was our anesthesiologist that took that video. So you know, having buy-in from anesthesia is critical in this process, right? I, I couldn't stress that enough. You know, it's they are such an important part of this team. They take pride in the fact that we're doing these many cases in that period of time. So they're they're very keenly aware of how good a progress each patient is in this process. And we keep track of time as soon as they hit the recovery room. So we know that last year, our recovery time was two hours and nine minutes. That's two minutes shorter than it was the year before. So we know exactly how long it takes. We know exactly why people stay in the recovery room. What are those barriers or what are the reasons why people stay more than three hours in the recovery room? So we know every one of those and we track that data to see, boy, how can we improve our efficiency? How can we improve post-operative urinary retention or hypotension or all the things that keep everyone in a recovery room for longer than they should? So we have a great question from Sarah Elbogan, who is the Total Joint Coordinator at Presidio Surgery Center. Do you think a center can achieve similar times if they're not dedicated joint centers and also cater to ENT, plastic, general surgery, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. It is super hard when you have multiple disciplines, multiple different specialties, right? So it is harder to attain that, but you absolutely can, but you have to silo it into each surgeon, right? 
So you have to know exactly what that surgeon, that specialty needs, how long it takes them on average. You have to know that stuff going in. Um, so it's possible. We've seen it around the country where people are effectively doing that. But it's obviously harder if you've got one ENT case and the next case is a total knee and you're having to you know, change out pants, you lose some of that effectiveness for sure. Um, it depends also how many ORs you have. Sarah, how many ORs do you guys have there? Looks like she's on. Five. Yeah, five. Cool. And how many cases do you guys do a day? Uh, it really depends on if we've got a dedicated day for orthopedics or not. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that makes so much sense to keep them somewhat dedicated, right? Whether it's in the morning or afternoon or all day, I think that just helps everyone. You know, the reason why we're able to do it so efficiently is because frankly, these guys can do this with their eyes closed, right? Another total knee or another total hip. If I had them do 15 different procedures, there's no way they could be that efficient and that good, right? So really trying to keep them locked in per team or at least per day, you know, that way you get the repetition doing the same thing every single case, I think is critical. And you see that eye doctors, ENT docs, they can just turn a lot of cases because they can do the same thing over and over. You know, it's also, you also have to look at how you're managing, you know, your schedule, right? Are you, are you scheduling complex cases at the beginning or at the end? You know, we look at all those things, you know, when we, when we decide our order of cases, in order to, you know, kind of keep that efficiency going. Um, Hopefully that helps though. Sarah, I, th I think part of the answer to your question too goes into this, the, the part of the article called operational excellence. And so there are principles that uh, apply to any specialty and it should. And so while, while Dr. DeCook can do a hip in less than 20 minutes, and that's pretty cool, it's doing that 12 times by noon. That's, that's really amazing, right? So it, it becomes these steps of, well, how do we, how do we clean the room and how do we get the pay, you know, what point do we start cleaning the room and at what point um, do we, do we start the spinal and what point does the room get, start to get opened and how do you, how do you turn over a room quickly enough? And I, I think you can do that with, with probably with any specialty. I, I would think turnover actually might be harder in orthopedics than, than some of these other uh, surgeries that are more soft tissue. So one of, one of the principles with this is, you know, we, we, we tend to operate they're series, operating in series and parallel. We tend to do things in series in the operating room. That's just tradition where one step has to be completed before we begin the next one. And the more you can layer things where multiple things are going on at the same time, the quicker you'll, you'll, get, you'll get back in the room. There's this um, uh, term that, that called a knot, which is non-operative time. And our goal is to reduce that. So so if the hip took 40 minutes and that's what one surgeon does, that's fine. It's that non-operative time that we really want to reduce. I'll add to that. That's a great point, Jeremy. I'll add to that. If you think about the hospital, right, you have one dedicated person that's going to come in the room and help clean, right, after a case, right? And then somehow that gets communicated to the scrub tech to start opening the next case. And then somehow some communication happens to the nurse to help come help. Right. And then maybe you notify anesthesia and it's all happening in series and you're relying on all these communications and everyone doing that effectively. So our philosophy at our surgery center is anybody can do anything. Right. So I am opening trays. I am mopping. I can do any step that any other scrub, you know, scrub tech circulator can do. Right. My radiology tech, 
my rep, we all feel like we can each contribute, right? My assistants can interchange, right? If I've got an assistant closing in one room, they can take a different part of that procedure. Just because you can interchange those tasks, if you have one person that does one thing, it's just not effective. It just, you lose too much time doing it that way. There was a question. I'm not, Ahmed Siddiqui, do you want to ask your question yourself or you want me to ask it for you? What do you think? Ahmed? I'm going to get on mute. Um, hey, yeah, Dr. Uh, Krishna, I'm here. So, so my question was uh, two things. So in terms of spinal, what kind of spinal are you using? Obviously, there's been a lot of talks about mid-pivocane recently. Um, and, and, and how much time do you usually have from the time that the spinal goes in, in the pre-op area to time to incision? And by the time you're done with the operation, obviously, you guys are you're super, super efficient. One of the, you know, so I've really tried to push the, you know, the anesthesiologist and the team to try to do spinals in pre-op. And one of their biggest concern is like, well, you know, we don't mind doing that. But then the time to get in the room and 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 by the time you're cutting it's just going to be extended period of time so so how did you know how did you guys really fine-tune that side of things and then i guess on a separate question is how do you really incentivize hospital staff to keep up with the efficiencies you know like the surgery center is one thing you know where you know i have great experience there and obviously there's room for improvement but your hospital has been the biggest struggle uh to really incentivize staff to you know keep you know, building on what you're trying to build and, you know, where everyone's there, you know, working different shifts and lunch breaks. And after like, you know, one, two o'clock, it just like a standstill, you know? So, so what are some of your, you know, insight yeah. and, and advice with, with that? Man, those are, those are great questions. First of all, let me deal with anesthesia. Anesthesia should not be doing things in your OR. You should be doing things in your OR. It's for operating. It's not for anesthesia. By that, I mean, they should do pre-op, in the pre-op, they should do all the blocks, all the spinals that should be done there, right? For contamination, for infection reasons, and for time reason, that should all be done in pre-op, right? Now, what they're telling you is absolutely true. The anesthesiologist brings up a good point, and that is, listen, we can give you a spinal, but if you don't consistently do a case in 60 minutes, I have no idea when to start to spinal. I have no idea how much dose to give you on the mepivacaine or chloroprocaine or lidocaine or whatever one you decide, right? Each of our surgeons has an average surgical time, right? So our doses of our spinals are related to that individual surgeon. It's not based on the patient height, right? So that's typically how anesthesia has done it for a long time. That's bogus. That's done, right? It has to be based on the surgical time. And you have to know when to tell him to start that or her that particular spinal, right? If you don't know how much longer it's going to take, then you're going to randomly say, well, go ahead, go ahead and put the next spinal in. I'm closing or I'm putting the cup in or I think it's about time, right? The problem is if you have one room or two rooms, oftentimes you don't know when to tell the anesthesiologist to start. And that's your fault, right? Because you have to give them granular data so they know exactly how long. So to give you an idea how we've transitioned, we've done mepivacaine. As our surgeons have become more efficient, the dosing has changed. It became necessary for us to change the shorter acting. So we're currently doing chloroprocaine. A lot of centers do lidocaine. But to that anesthesiologist's point, he brings up a good thing. If you tell them to start that spinal and pre-op and that spinal wears out, then we're in trouble, right? So you have to be granular with your OR time. And that has to be transparent to the anesthesiologist. Then you can hold them accountable for that. 
I hope that answers it. I think there's another question, Jeremy. You want to answer the second part? Uh, right. So in the in the hospital, I so in, one thing I think is important is dedicated staff. So you you can't in Charlie referenced that earlier. You can't have the the you know general surgery OBGYN tech come into your room and expect to do a halfway decent efficient procedure. Uh, and so in the surgery center, that's a natural setup. It's it's going to be dedicated staff, but in a uh, but even even maybe to some degree dedicated to you. But in the hospital, that's where it's a little more challenging. What's what's interesting, you know, staffing is a big deal right now, and all the hospitals are struggling with it. Um, I, so a couple of the articles we referenced in the paper, and I was actually trying to kind of pull it up, if, but they they talk about how uh, they they're, they're reducing their overtime. They're in the hosp- in a hospital setting by becoming more efficient. They're uh, people are not staying late. Uh, they're actually hiring more personnel to be able to be more efficient, but their personnel costs are going down. So what I think what you do is you go to your administration or your surgery director and you show them these types of numbers and you, and you get buy-in where I need dedicated staff. I need the same people every week. Uh, and, and then you, you also find the people who can naturally do this well and people who don't. There are people who will never get this. They'll never staff will never go, Hey, I, I want to, I want to work this way, but you will, there are people out there who love it. And when they love it, it's so much fun. Cause then they, I mean, they, 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 they you create an environment that they want to be in. They love being efficient. They love getting stuff done. And when you find those people, you hang on to them. Well, there's no special incentive programs. Like if we finish by 12, everyone gets uh, a Chuck E. Cheese uh, coupon or something you know, you know, we randomly do those things, you know, we randomly take our staff out and do those kind of things, but there's not a, Hey, if I can do my 12 by 12, then, uh, you know, everybody gets lunch. There's not that. And frankly, that's motivation is fleeting. It doesn't work effectively. Right. It's, are they proud to be part of your team? Do they want to be part of it? Now they'll self-select out, right? So we all know, I mean, there's people in hospitals that have been there for a long time and frankly, nobody's going to push them to do anything right? That's never going to, you're never going to change a lot of people, right? But, you know, that self-selects out. I mean, they would last about a half day in our surgery center or hospital before they realize they're in the wrong place, right? So I think it's more about that than, you know, motivating, motivating them financially, for sure. The other thing I'll say is we are adequately staffed. By that, I mean, when you see what our turnover looks like, Man, it's impressive because we have four or five people that go in the room. They're taking all the trays out. They're cleaning. They're getting everything ready. If you think you can do that with one scrub tech and a circulator, it's never going to happen, right? Think about just moving a patient from the bed to the stretcher or vice versa, right? That's a three-man process in and of itself. You know, no wonder they have to wait 15 minutes in your hospital is because they got no help, Right. So I think you really have to look and be very critical during the turnover time of who's actually in the room to help, right? A lot of times you go in a hospital, it's like, there's nobody there, right? There's nobody there to help. And it's, it's not a one-man show. So you have to have the adequate staff. And if you're collecting this data, not only time, but if you're collecting the value and money you're making, it will be abundantly obvious to hospital administrators, oh my gosh, maybe I do need another four orderlies to help me with turnovers. You know, those kind of processes become, you know, very transparent and very obvious once you show them that. You know, what's amazing to me is that by using time as your metric, 
you could actually prove in a hospital setting I'm talking about now, you can actually make a case for the to the administration or to whoever it is or to me who is the chairman and say, okay, we did this as best we could with Bob and Susan, who's all we have. We seem to be maxed out. Give us this and now let's see what all the times look like. And if all of a sudden you were doing four cases by 12, just saying it. Um, which is considered very good in a hospital, okay? Um, yep. And now you're doing the same four cases by 11 or by 1045, all of a sudden, time as your metric has now become a religion in the administrator's head. I mean, I think I, think I love the idea that you're doing time because no one could argue it. A second is a second. That's right. You know, it's... It's universal. It's universal. Even in Atlanta, even though you guys talk a lot slower than us New Yorkers, it's time is the same. Time, Absolutely. Time that, is that, the same. And yeah. Yeah. That, that brings up a great point. So to give you an idea, just to understand, you know, our staffing, we have just two rooms in our surgery center. We did that on purpose. Right. But I had four scrub techs today. I had three circulators and I had one other assistant and I had one person, the SPD, right? We did 15 cases. The last case went out of the room at 1.30, right? 15 cases. So if I go to someone and say, hey, listen, this is working. I'm spending extra, I don't know, one scrub tech, an extra circulator, an extra person, let's say three people, right? If I can do that kind of volume and efficiency, it's a no brainer to hire those people. It's no brainer to get more people involved in turnover times and help, right? I've spoken to my CEO many times and he has said the following line. Every time people say, I want more people because, and I'm going to bring you more money, be more efficient. I throw more people and I don't get the efficiency. And he may be right unless you have the metric, the right yeah. metric. Exactly. Well, you know, there's Parkinson's law and that is, you know, you're going to get everything. You're going to do something in a specific period of time that you're given to do it. Right. So if the expectation is a 30 minute turnover time, it, don't, it doesn't matter if you have one person or four people, they're going to lollygag around and get it done in 30 minutes. Or if it's one or four people. Right. It's just it's Parkinson's law at, at its finest. Right. So you have to change those kind of expectations, right? In our surgery center, we have never had a late start. Never. Right, right? so we have Dr. Siddiqui has another question. Yep. Ahmed? Hey, yeah, sorry. So one no last problem. question. So so you touched on it before about efficiencies and, and, and time and all that. And, and you kind of mentioned, you know, about one of the inefficiencies are, you know, it takes you 40 minutes to do a case and it takes, you know, the system 40 minutes to close. So that's kind of where I'm stuck right now. You know, I'm, I'm about, you know, 16 months in and I'm around the 30, 35 minute mark until, you know, incision to when I'm done and all they have to close is sub Q and, put the dressing on and that's it. And it takes them just as long as to do it. Uh, so, so, and I've, and I have two PAs and you know, I have two rooms and, and they work well, but you know, what do you recommend to try to get these PAs who do a good job to like get further efficient at closing without telling them you got to hurry up, you know, like it's hard to find good PAs also. So just some thoughts, you know, that you would recommend. Well, to give you an idea on a total knee, right? I mean, we use a bi-directional, right? So once operating going up, I'm going down. I actually stay in until near the, 
very end of closing, just because of that very thing that you say. And that is, I want to stay in that room as long as I can to ensure that we're going to efficiently close, right? You also have to have the right type of closers, right? I mean, if you've got a closer is taking 40 minutes to close, there's a problem, right? Especially if it's a hip or a knee, I mean, it should not take that long. Um, so that, that's my, you know, you got to look at their experience and you should stay in there until you absolutely have to go to the next room. So if you're bouncing back between rooms, I stay in there to close until I know that next patient's ready to cut on, right? Or in, in, in case I look over and say, boy, it looks like they need help prepping and draping, right? So I just kind of go wherever I think I'm needed the most. I've got cameras, you know, in both rooms so I can keep an eye on things and where things are going. I think the key to your question is you you've identified a problem, right? So that's the first step. And so often we don't now, I think when we talk about radical time transparency, one of the key issues is that we're not just going, we feel like this is the problem, but, but we're putting numbers to it. We're actually sitting down and going, how long does this actually take? And does it take this PA this long or this PA this long? If you can, you can gather that information and then they can see it. Our, our natural tendency is to go, hmm, I could do better. Uh, if you can compare that time to someone else's, you know, whether someone else in your group or your hospital or even somewhere else in the country, how long it takes to close, they can, they can go, oh, I, I'm not as good as other people. Uh, and then sometimes they naturally work on speeding that up. It may be beneficial to go visit someone else with your PA to let them and, and figure out, well, what are we doing differently? Is it our suture? Is it our, and, and so you, once you know the problem and you quantify it, then you, and then you can also watch your progress. So you, if you're keeping track of the times, if they, if they go from 30 minutes to 20 minutes, that's incredible. And so they also need to see that and celebrate that and know that we, we've got a 33% improvement in our closing time. And that's pretty awesome. And then when they see that, I think that'll also motivate them more to keep it going. We got a couple of great questions uh, that I'd like to put across. Someone from, I don't know who's, who has this because their name got obliterated, but having cross-department buy-in, uh, what happens when unforeseen circumstances come up? Uh, whoever said that question, do you want to uh, say it yourself or I'll finish it up? You can go ahead and ask it, uh, Dr. Ira. Yeah, okay, sure. So what happens when unforeseen circumstances come up out of your control, such as the patient arrives late, a patient doesn't clear pre-op well, something happens in the OR, you know, does your system give you the flexibility to be proactive in mitigating the waste associated with unforeseen delays? And you know, I didn't ask this question because that is very erudite and, and quite good. And it, it's just not someone from the Bronx, but I, I get it. Yeah. Well, if you look at drum buffer rope theory, which basically means we need a continuous product into the OR, that means that if you have a patient that doesn't show up or if they show up late, you need the next patient ready to go. So to give you an idea, I have three or four patients ready to go if that happens. Let's say one of them has AFib on the monitor. One of them doesn't show up. I always have another patient ready to go in that process. So getting those patients ready in the queue, knowing when to get those patients to the OR, right? So we make, we make incisions that generally between 6.15 and 6.30 every morning. So we generally get patients there, the first two patients show up at 5 a.m., the next one at 5.30, next at 6, and so on and so forth. But that is the basic philosophy of if one of those patients screws up, 
you know, we have more to go. Now, if all three of them didn't show up, well, then it would be a problem. Let's say, you know, another concern people have is, okay, I'm about done with the procedure. What if I, you know, fracture the calcar on the way out or something like that, or something unforeseen happens, rupture an MCL or something, you know, something tragic happens, right? So you do have to have a little bit of filler there and you have to know how long it takes you to screw up, you know, fix something you screwed up, right? So for me, if I happen to get a calcar fracture, I know it takes me to cable. It takes me about a minute and a half to cable a femur, right? So that's not going to make a difference one way or another. So you have to have some room uh, for unforeseen circumstances, you know, like, let's say, you know, gosh, I really need to cement this femur. It's terrible femur, you know, that kind of thing. You have to have a little bit of leeway there, but that's based on what you know about your average times. So uh, we have a couple of what I think rapid fire questions here. Are you cementing any knees or using mostly cement? Yeah, I happen to cement all my knees in the surgery center right now, just because, you know, we're all about value and our press fit knees right now are very expensive. So we cement all our, our total knees. All right. And from uh, uh, Fred Bartner, um, Fred, you want to ask your question yourself or you want me to hit this one? Oh, make Fritz ask it. Fritz, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Hey, how are you doing? Nice talks. Um, I have one issue, like in a big hospital like us, I, I know my people are going to be there for 10 hours. So I sometimes run into the issue that if I finish faster, they're going to start slowing down because they don't want to have the next case flipped into the room and do a spine washout or whatever. So they yeah. kind of like everything works really well until 1230. And then suddenly, for whatever reason, things like turnover, suddenly I have a two hour turnover in between just to make it that they can leave at five o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is so funny. That happens in Atlanta all the time, especially at our hospital. Yeah. That has to be at a administrative level, right? You have to go in and plead your case and say, listen, we want to be more efficient, but these guys, I'm going to run them to death. They're going to do six or seven cases. Then they have to go and do another room. So early on, we said, listen, you can't do this to our staff. If we're that super efficient, you can't make them go over there. Let them go eat. Let them relax after they're done. Let them stay on the clock. Uh, and that has to be something that you're fighting with administration, with nursing or wherever it needs to be, whatever level. We made that we made that plea long ago and it, it, it's effective. Right. Same with our surgery center. Right. They know, like, even though we work them to the bone until 1:30 today, we they knew they could relax for a few hours before they're off the clock. You know, they can do some mindless, easy stuff where they're cleaning rooms or, you know, getting the next cases ready for the next day. So you do have to do that. Otherwise, they'll have no motivation to finish. Great point, Fritz. So Jeremy Smith asked, uh, what knee positioner do you use? Knee position. Yeah. So, you know, everything we do, obviously, any new technology, a knee positioner, it's all with obviously taking good care of the patient and efficiency, right? So, you know, we use uh, something called a velocity, which moves up and down very fast. It allows you to, you know, flex, hyperflex the knee, extend it quite quickly. A lot of people are enamored with that when they come to the OR because, you know, it, it moves the knee quite quickly, which is, you know, in our world is pretty nice. Who makes that? I have no idea. Good deal. Uh, I honestly don't know either. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad the company had great name, <laughs> great unaided name recognition on that one. 
It's called velocity bump. Uh, it's simple. Uh, it'd be hard to get it wrong. Uh, I mean, and, and it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, it doesn't. It's not a positioner that. that so, so, so it can be put anywhere, and it still works. So, that's yeah. amazing. So, how do people? We're we're sort of told in. How do people get to visit you guys? You know, let's yeah. I mean, what we could provide our contact info. We love talking to whole groups. You know, obviously the surgeon is just one part of it. So it's rare that it's just the surgeon comes by himself. They can, but herself or himself can come anytime they want. So we have people come all the time, text us, email us. We'll get it all set up for you. It's always best to bring your team, right? A lot of times it's the surgeon bringing their team to say, look what's possible. You know, you know, I was watching this F1 race. And I was like, oh my gosh, they just did a pit stop in like three seconds. I was like, this is freaking unbelievable. They changed the tires, they gassed up, they did everything in three seconds. It's like almost unfathomable, right? I think we hold ourselves to this mediocre visibility of efficiency and are like, no, there's no way. Like everyone calls me out, like there's no way you do 12 cases by 12 o'clock. It's so bullshit. You know, I don't believe you. And they bring their team. They see it. They're like, oh my gosh. Again, this has nothing to do with, oh, he's a great surgeon. It's, they never say that. It's what a, what a fantastic team you have, you know? So it, you got to see it to believe it. You got to bring the right people, anesthesia, the administrators to really be able to kind of wrap their head around the ideas. We really do suck. There really is a better way to do it. Last question, and then I'm going to uh, wrap up. Uh, at what point during your procedures are you calling for the next patient? Was there a trial and error process? or? Uh... Gosh, yeah. Yeah, there's about a 10-year trial and error process, right? Once, yeah, yeah, once you get really good, right? Obviously, first in practice, you know, your, your surgical times go from, I did a great case. It took me 30 minutes to, it took me two and a half hours. Right. I mean, that's the first, you know, first year or two in practice. And then it comes down and down and down. Right. And then it doesn't matter if it's a crow three displays or a nasty 20 degree valgus knee, you get it zipped down to where you're going to end up being right? right. Once you get it zipped down to, okay, this is where it is. If you know you're within 10 minutes either way, regardless of how terrible or easy the joint is, if you've got that kind of consistency, then you can go to your anesthesiologist and say, no, exactly. Okay, when I ream, that's when you do the next spinal. Or when I ream, or when I put this point in, or whatever start in the part of the procedure. Now, it used to be I would call that out. I don't even do that anymore, right? So they know because they have visibility into what's happening in the OR. There's no calls up. Hey, is he ready to do the spinal? Are you sure you're ready kind of deal? It's none of that anymore. It's just the transparency. Interesting. Interesting stuff. So I want to let everyone know we're recording this, the recording of the whole uh, session, as well as the videos that you saw are going to be available on doc.social. I'm going to be pushing that on LinkedIn. So you'll see it there. And everyone who is here tonight and everyone who signed up will get an email with the link. You don't have to sign up to anything. You can see the videos and see tonight's uh, recordings. Um, um, just some final comments from both of you guys. Let's start with Jeremy. Jeremy, some final comments and advice to the crew who is listening. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the, I, I, I think first of all, you, you've, 
you've got to decide do you want this or not if you want it bad enough then you just you just keep going um the for those who at the surgery center it's it's easy right the the whole environment set up for a patient experience and quite honestly surgeon experience and it's it's easier to make these changes but i think you can do it anywhere uh i think you 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 develop a plan if if you know you go to your administration and you you can show them how if we improve our efficiency we can we can reduce your personnel costs. We can reduce overtime costs. Uh, we can increase revenue for the hospital. And there's there's studies out there, and they're in the paper uh, that that show this. And it's not not just an idea. It's 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 real. And um, yeah, so you 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 create you, you sell it. You have to sell it. You sell it to the administration. You have to sell it to your anesthesiologist. You sell it to your staff. And um, I think a big part of this too is is as you make these improvements, be very show gratitude. To your staff, uh, you know we we don't say thank you enough. Uh, create an environment that they enjoy being in. Uh, you want you want the staff fighting to be in your room because you want you want to get those right people. You want you want six or seven people going. I want to be in that room, and they want it. Not that yes, they're going to work harder, but they also know they're going to have a good time. Uh, so create that kind of environment, uh, and then uh, just just keep going with it. And, and it's something you get to play with. And when you really get into it, it's, it, it's fun. It just turns into fun. Charlie. Um, yeah. I, th I think the uh, first and last thing has always been, and always will be taking great care of our patients, right? Our surgical outcomes, how we do for our patients is by far the most important thing, right? If you start with that premise, efficiency just comes along for the ride. Once you throw in radical time transparency, right? you improve your own techniques, everyone else improves around you, and you do a better surgery, right? So don't think of this as we rush surgery or we decrease the quality of a total knee or total hip. That's not it at all. It's we care about our patients. We're trying to do the very best we can. And by doing that, we are doing everything consistently the same every time, those same steps in the procedure. And we have that visibility in our ORs to do that. I think I'll end up that. It's absolutely awesome. Uh, I really want to thank you guys, not only for a remarkable article, which I was going to pass on to some of my business school professors, see if they want to re republish that in the business school uh, review. But I also uh, want to thank you for tonight and for the uh, great work you do. I mean, it's just, uh, it's great to be an orthopedic surgeon. You know, like Joe DiMaggio said, I thank God every day he made me a Yankee and we thank God every day he made us orthopedic surgeons. So it works out. Yeah. So, Ira, thanks, thanks for the invitation. Thanks for giving us this, uh, this voice and for this incredible journal. Thank you. It. Appreciate it. All right. I'm going to end for everybody. Um, thank you. Thank you all for coming and keep your eyes open for the, vi for the video. Bye -bye. Yes. Thank you.